Thanksgiving is a time for appreciation. It's a time to remember our many blessings, to celebrate with the ones that we love the most, and it's time for all families to be together. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Thanksgiving. I used to love this town until what happened that night. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. We're all tagged, and our names are at the table. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Show some enthusiasm. Thanksgiving is an institution here. We hope you enjoy the show. Let's see. Today we're discussing Thanksgiving, starring Patrick Dempsey. Addison Ray, Milo Mannheim, Jalen Thomas Brooks, Neil Varquet, Rick Hoffman, and Gina Gershon, directed by Eli Roth. Welcome to the Death Star. This is where the magic happens. This is Ani, co-host of Now Playing. Oh, I thought it was Matt Damon. You tricked me with that Boston accent. How do you like them apples? Okay, Stephen King, a little bit more of that, and I think I'll be killing you. This is Stuart. (laughs) And this is Jacob, and before you call me a goddamn son of a bitch, you better think about it, baby. Hey, my Massachusetts accent is just as good as half the ones in this movie, I dare say. Patrick Dempsey got nothing on me. Okay, all right, we'll discuss all of that. Yes, we're discussing the sexiest man alive, Patrick Dempsey. This year, last week, this man got on the cover of People magazine. Okay, I didn't realize this was Patrick Dempsey, but my wife did. She's like, oh, it's that guy from Grey's Anatomy. I'm like, who's that? She's like, Patrick Dempsey. I'm like, can't buy me love? Mm Mm-hmm. Can't Buy Me Love guy is now a hot dad. Like, I didn't know he was the sexiest man, but I'm like, he is a hot dad now. Wow. I had no idea that that was going to be his arc. Yeah. How did Ronald Miller become McDreamy is just a loss to me. (laughs) But then now, what has he even done to deserve sexiest man alive this year? I haven't seen him. This movie, putting on pilgrim attire and killing people makes you sexy. Yeah, let's talk about it. Thanksgiving. It's been almost 17 years since Grindhouse and how different the world feels from that time, right? Quentin Tarantino, he was on the, you know, downward end on that, but he was the ruler of pop culture in that era. Would Pulp Fiction even be noticed if it were released today. I feel like what Tarantino traffics in, you know, the whole idea of repurposing retro grindhouse, scuzzy, grimy, grainy footage that your parents, grandparents made, like that is swipe left now. Nobody wants that. I don't know that people wanted it back then. It didn't do very well at the box office. Grindhouse didn't. Yeah, that's what I mean. He was on the downward slide. He got them to green light a four-hour horror movie, but that's only because he had that much clout. What really hit me watching this was slashers. Like, that's what felt dated to me. Forget the whole grindhouse thing. I I feel like horror today, and you look at the horror re-review on the show, it's elevated horror, it's demonic possessions or ghosts with the conjuring influence. Like, to just have a straight-up slasher. Yeah, we had those Halloween reboots, but this feels like a very different type of horror movie than the stuff my girls are typically watching. 
I think the slasher is on a comeback, though. We've got It's a Wonderful Knife. We've got Thanksgiving. There's another one coming up pretty soon that I've been hearing good things about. I think the slasher is about to make a comeback, and I'm here for it. It's trying, Arnie. Let's just frame it like, <laughs> yes, there are some efforts that are trying. But as an actual trend, I think the only thing that you can point to is Scream 6 did very well this year. And maybe that has a lot to do with the star. I don't know. But Jenna Ortega probably sold a lot of tickets. I don't know if Ghostface, Leatherface... Freddy, Jason. I don't know that they're cool with today's kids. Again, I would say I've never felt like I've lived in a time where young audiences cared less about movie history and what's been done before. Fortunately, our audience eschews that trend and goes with us when we review old movies as well as new movies like this one. And thank you to our audience this Thanksgiving. I'm very thankful for every listener listening to this show. Is this movie going to make any money? Is there going to be a box office for Thanksgiving? Which, again, let's just remind folks. Grindhouse was a four-hour double feature in which Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez both made silly B-flicks. And in between them, to help create the experience, you're in a scuzzy movie theater in Times Square in 1973. They ran joke trailers. Just two minutes of, like, kinds of crappy films you might see in a Grindhouse. And one of them was directed by Eli Roth. Three minutes of it was Eli Roth having a laugh that the only slasher holiday movie we haven't gotten was Thanksgiving. And I got to say, that is wrong. If you joined us during our watch-alongs during COVID, I chose Blood Rage, which is a Thanksgiving slasher. Underrated, underappreciated, underseen, but it's been done before. But yes, it does feel like a joke thing to do a Thanksgiving slasher. Yeah, especially the way they did that Grindhouse trailer. I went back and rewatched that and making fun of it. And I mean, it definitely made its way in here, but he inserted some great jokes. White meat, dark meat, all will be carved. I mean, there will be no leftovers. There were good lines that made that trailer stand out more memorably than some of the others. And will this movie make money to your original question, Stuart? It's estimated that it's going to make $10 million this weekend on a $15 million budget. This feels like something that would probably go direct to streaming anyway and probably make a profit with a $15 million budget. So I feel like this movie's destined to end up in the green, despite all the red on the screen, even though it's not going to blow things away. Way. I don't know if they're going to fast track Thanksgiving too because of a $10 million opening, but it is opening against Hunger Games. So kind of some stiff competition. I was surprised when I went to the theater, it was a larger theater, a couple hundred seats, and it was probably half full. And maybe this is disturbing, maybe it's not, but there were families there. Their kids weren't babies, but they were like 9, 10, 11 years old. Like there was a whole range. There were some people there. I'm like, yep, you would be at an Eli Roth horror film opening night. That makes sense. But <laughs> I was surprised like how full it's been compared to how empty most screenings have been during now playing reviews. But just to put it in perspective, Scream 6 made $100 million. So this is not like anywhere near that same level. That made $100 million. That's crazy. A hundred million and yes, it truly has brought slashers back. But also, I mean, go listen to the review. I think it's throwing away the idea that you need to know horror history in order to appreciate it. Now, my point is, what does Scream have that this movie doesn't have? Does anyone like Eli Roth? I mean, I feel like he has struggled. You want to talk about Tarantino. He owes his entire career to Tarantino green lighting Hostel and casting him as the bear Jew 
and Inglorious Bastards, but has he ever delivered on all of that goodwill? The only hit I could think of was Hostile. I like Eli Roth. Cabin Fever, Hostile, Hostile 2, one of the early, early reviews that we did in the early days of now playing, and even Knock Knock, that Keanu Reeves home invasion thriller. Eli Roth is a draw for me. I can't say that I see everything he's done, but I definitely am more interested in a horror film with his name attached. And I went and filled in some of my Eli Roth gaps before I saw this. I hadn't seen the Hostel films. I hadn't seen Green Inferno, so I watched those. I had seen everything else of his, including The House with the Clock in Its Walls, a kid's movie with Jack Black and Kate Blanchett. I didn't even know that was him until we were reviewing this, and I'm like, he did that movie? Yeah, one of his best films. I'll say, yeah, Cabin Fever, Hostel 2, as far as his horror stuff goes. Like, I like the idea of Eli Roth more than I like his films. Like, I see why Tarantino pushes him, but then, like, get someone else to direct and write your scripts. Like, you come up with the ideas and then let someone else better do it all. That's how I feel after watching all his films. Again, the negative connotations of fanboy is someone that, yes, you might like what they like, but in them trying to replicate it, they underwhelm. I mean, again, I think Hostel is underwhelming. I think Cabin Fever is underwhelming. I didn't see Knock Knock, and no, I didn't see House with a Clock in Its Walls, but we did cover his Death Wish redo with Bruce Willis, and I don't remember any of us being impressed. Not good. And we are on the hook. It should just be said, Jacob, you'll be watching Green Inferno again. A patron has picked that for us to review. We'll probably cover it when his video game adaptation of Borderlands comes out next summer. But it's a draw for you. I'm hearing draw for you, Arnie. And Jacob, you want to like him, but haven't yet. Yeah, I get excited when I hear that he's directing something. But then I remember, oh, he's never actually as good as I want him to be. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I would honestly say is that I kind of like his sense of humor. I like that Thanksgiving trailer. If you said, what's the best thing he's ever done? That trailer. It was that three-minute trailer in Grindhouse. It was a highlight of that movie and of his career, but it's been a hot minute since then. And is this desperation that he now has to go back since Hostel flamed out, since nobody liked his house with the clock in the walls except for you, Jacob? Like, is this just the last thing that he has? I can't imagine there's like a studio producer going like, hey, let's mine those joke trailers from Grindhouse. Let's get Eli Roth. Here's his last chance. I just got to figure, I guess we've passed Halloween, but this is a gimmick movie. It's based on Thanksgiving. It's a slasher horror film. You can make it cheap and make your money back. I got to guess that's the reasoning on this one. I think this might have been a passion project. I mean, he left Borderlands during additional photography and gave it to a different director to go do this. And even though Borderlands is coming out next year, I saw an interview with him where he was like, if I never get to make another film, I got to make Thanksgiving. And I'm really happy about that. So I do think that maybe this is something that he really felt strongly about or he was fired from Borderlands secretly. One of the other. (laughs) He pulled a Nia DaCosta on the Marvels here. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to get too much into Borderlands, but that movie seems to be in trouble. It was shot years ago and has struggled to, it's tested and reshot and is being dumped at the end of next summer. Not good omens there. I imagine it does leave a bitter taste. Maybe he was nostalgic for making a movie that would be fun. My question is though, did he always have it in mind when he shot that trailer? Did he have the script for a full movie? I would say no. I would say that that trailer feels like it was full 
full of jokes and, you know, references, and now he has to fill it in. I mean, it's a tough thing to be able to take a three-minute, you know, sizzle reel and turn it into an actual movie. Yeah, he didn't have a script when he did the trailer. He talked about how he was starting this script back in 2014 and it needed additional work. So it's not like he was shopping around Thanksgiving and then had a chance to make a trailer for a movie that wasn't being made. But, I mean, just keep in mind, Machete got a movie, Hobo with a Shotgun got a movie. Some of those joke trailers, very quickly, soon after Grindhouse's flop, they produced legitimate movies. Machete had a sequel, and this film had nothing for 17 years. Now, I'm sure you guys went back and watched that fake joke trailer I did after I saw the film, and it's totally different aesthetic. This film does not have that Grindhouse aesthetic with the scratched frames and all that. This is a fully digital film where you're not going to have that happen. But, yeah, he tried to take the scenes from that trailer, like a person in a turkey mascot outfit getting their head cut off and find reasons to put it in this film. There's only one murder in that trailer I didn't see in this, and that was a guy getting head while he lost his head in a car. That seems to be a cut scene, perhaps, from this one. Not here. That was Eli Roth. And there was also a scene of a girl kissing a character named Bobby, but I don't remember the Bobby in this movie having his head severed while mid-smooch. No, not at all. Honestly, I'll just reveal right now, I'd have much rather seen the movie that that Grindhouse trailer did than the movie we're here to watch. The movie we're here to watch has much more modern sensibilities, eschewing away from nudity and sex and... That trailer had nudity and when they recreate that scene, there's no boobies. I know. Like you said, Jacob, make slashers horny again. Come on. (laughs) All right. That was my curiosity. And I'm really shocked to hear Arnie come down on the side of, I want old and grungy. Like, yes, this movie is not that trailer. No, there was more fun and more nostalgia in that old trailer. It reminded me of the slasher movies I grew up with. But two things to that. One, most of the big laugh lines from the trailer are in this movie. They did go back and cultivate them. And in some altered state, they, I would say, 85% exist here in a movie. And two, can you really make a 90-minute movie that's nothing but a bunch of gory splatter jokes? Yeah, that's every slasher. Yeah, and are they fun to watch in total? Yes, we like the sizzle reel. We like somebody to cut them down to their best moments, the three minutes that are going to give us that high. But when you actually have to sit in a theater and pay top dollar, would anyone in 2023 want to see that Thanksgiving? Were they smart to try and make this a more conventional murder mystery? I mean, I think so. If I were greenlighting this film, I wouldn't greenlight the one from before because your target audience is younger and recent studies have shown younger audiences want more platonic movies and less romance in movies. And if you're trying to get a slasher out there and hit that young demographic, admittedly, this is rated R, but you always aim slashers young, then I'd think this is the movie you would want to make. You want more romance in your Thanksgiving movie? They don't want as much horniness as we want. (laughs) And they don't want dating. They just want friendships. I will say I saw the, I don't know, Zoomer hit of the year Skidamarink, which is like some really low res indoor security cameras like showing walls. You tell me what that movie is. I've fallen asleep to it five times now and never gotten through. 
Have you? I'm telling you, my daughters loved it. Like, it is a real Zoomer aesthetic. Like, if you watch horror on YouTube, like, it fits right into there. But my point is, yeah, for us, we want that scratched up, grainy stuff. That's just not the aesthetic anymore. I think you could do a home-brewed aesthetic on this, but it's just different what appeals to kids today than appeals to us. Yeah, Skinner Rank does go for that grindhouse look or something, but yeah. <laughs> something. <laughs> I don't know what that movie is. I really don't understand it. Again, five times, not an exaggeration. I mean, if you've seen five minutes, you've seen the movie. I'll just put it that way. I've fallen asleep every time. There's something about it that's narcoleptic. You're staring at walls for an hour and a half. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I would offer, I think it wise that Eli Roth changed with the times, even though this movie would look very different if it were greenlit back in 2007 than it coming out now. I think that it would be a mistake to try and, I mean, if Grindhouse wasn't a hit in 2007, what hope would that aesthetic have in 2023? Yeah. And those machete films and Hobo with the shotgun, whether you like them or not, they were not hits. Right. Machete kind of was. Mm, I mean... It got a sequel. It was cheap enough to make a sequel, yes. Because Robert Rodriguez is frugal and was trying to get Troublemaker Studios going, yes, he pushed that forward. I don't think anyone really wanted more or even that. Again, I think these things can exist as a joke and then kind of telling of our YouTube culture, after I've watched the three minutes, do I really want to watch any more? That remains the question. I will say this. I saw this movie on Thursday, opening night, as a double feature, a grindhouse of my own, <laughs> with the new Hunger Games. And there were just as many people in this Thanksgiving audience as there were for that big event film. Yeah, Jacob, you talked about how your theater was crowded. My theater was crowded, but I did have trouble finding a showing of this. Not every theater was showing it. Between the Marvels and the Hunger Games, and in a few theaters still, even Taylor Swift, I really had to drive a ways to find a theater showing this. It certainly was not in the biggest theater in the multiplex, but it was pretty full. There were a lot of people in there. It's the most crowded film I've been in in a while. Admittedly, that wasn't to the film's benefit. The people in front of me kept pulling out their phones, texting, looking at photos for some reason, and talking throughout the whole movie. They were not into this movie, and I was very annoyed by them. I just want to say I think I had a very dedicated audience because 10 minutes after the movie was supposed to start, it had not started. So I asked, hey, can you guys start the movie maybe? And then they start like, you know, all the pre-preview stuff that you watch when you get there early? They started playing that. I'm like, oh, hell no. I'm not sitting through all this. So I go back out and like, like Nuvi with Maria Menounos? Yes, Nuvi, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. So I'm like, um, can you start the movie, please? Like, I don't want to sit through this. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to skip all the trailers and everything. So I go back in. Nicole Kidman welcomes me. And then to my fear and horror, Marty welcomes me. Marty Scorsese only welcomes you to one film, and that's Killer of <laughs> the Flower Moons, which then starts to play. So everyone, like, gets up. I'm like, guys, I'll go. I told you to see it twice. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'll go. They've been dealing with me all night because of this. I'll go out and tell them. I'm like, can you guys play the right movie now? And then they start the pre-roll again. I'm like, oh, hell no. And then we had to sit through all the credits again. And then Nicole greeted us again. And then they got the right movie. So like an hour after this was supposed to start, very dedicated crowd. Like I only noticed maybe five or 10 people leave, but most of them stayed to finally get to watch this film. This sounds like the slasher was going to be you at the popcorn <laughs> stand here. Only because my wife would have become the slasher if she had to go deal with it. She has much less patience than me. Okay. Wow. It was as contentious as a Thanksgiving dinner, though. 
They did play Thanksgiving, the 2023 version for all of us. Eventually. (laughs) I guess we should talk about what we saw. Arnie, give them the plot. In small town Plymouth, Massachusetts. And is Plymouth, Massachusetts a small town? It seems like that would be a bigger place. I've been to the rock and it is very small, that Plymouth rock. But I hear that's not even the real rock. In small town Plymouth, Massachusetts, the popular place to shop is the big box store, Wright Mart. Like most stores, Wright Mart is a madhouse on Black Friday. So this year, its owner, Thomas Wright, played by Rick Hoffman, has decided to open on Thanksgiving evening. The crowd outside is impatient and unruly, waiting for the doors to open so the buyers can get their free waffle iron. But the shopper's ire is raised when a group of teenagers get into the store early. This is because the group is accompanied by Thomas Wright's daughter, Jessica, played by Neil Verilock. And it includes Jessica's jock boyfriend, Bobby, her friend Evan, Evan's girlfriend, Gabby, and their friends Scuba and Yulia, who I can't tell if they're dating or not. These teenagers' early purchase causes a riot and the shoppers storm the Wright Mart, trampling and killing a security guard. Bobby's throwing arm is broken in the stampede. Also, a shopper gets his throat slit in the chaos. The goriest death, though, happens to actress Gina Gershon, playing Amanda, the wife of the Wright Mart manager. She is pushed down and her hair gets caught in a shopping cart, scalping her. The movie then jumps one year later to the following Thanksgiving. In the aftermath of the carnage, Bobby has left town and ghosted all his friends. Jessica has a new boyfriend, Ryan, played by Milo Mannheim. But despite the events of the previous year, Jessica's dad, Thomas, still plans on opening the store on Thanksgiving Day, but just with increased security. Meaning three people instead of two. That security isn't going to be enough to stop the carver, though a serial killer who starts to pick off people connected to the Wright-Mark carnage. Wearing a John Carver mask, this killer first goes after a couple of the more boisterous shoppers from last Thanksgiving, and then turns his axe towards Jessica's friends. But while this masked killer is killing the shoppers, he's only kidnapping Jessica and her friends. He keeps posting to social media photos of the kidnapped teenagers, intimating that Thanksgiving is coming. Who is this killer? Is it Bobby, who's returned to town? Is it one of Jessica's friends? No, it turns out the killer is town sheriff Eric Newland, played by sexiest man alive Patrick Dempsey. In a twist, we see he'd been having an affair with Gina Gershon's character Amanda, and Amanda was carrying his baby. Amanda was going to leave her right-mart manager husband to be with the sheriff. Distraught over the loss of his lover and unborn child, Eric wreaked revenge on all those he blamed for Amanda's death. Jess discovers it's Eric and escapes, igniting an explosion as she flees. Eric is caught in the explosion, but was he killed? We're told no body was found, just ash, as credits roll. As we start, we start as the trailer does. We start with John Carpenter, the kingpin of holiday horror movies. He made Halloween and started with a POV of someone approaching a house. We get that same shot here, only, I don't know, does this signal too much that the killer's going to be Eric because the killer had that POV in Halloween that we have this POV and it turns out to be Eric knocking on the door of his friend. There's going to be a large cast of characters of who done it but maybe you know right from this opening shot i'll just say i did not guess the killer the people i suspected were not it i did not guess patrick dempsey sexiest man alive was murdering people 
I only guessed at the very end, and I didn't even equate this opening shot with Halloween, I guess because John Carpenter used that mask POV where you were seeing through eye holes and it felt like the mask was on the camera lens. Here, I knew this was taking place like they were poking fun at horror, like we were supposed to be scared of whoever was coming to the door and it turned out to be the sheriff, so I took that just as a joke, but it didn't give away the killer to me by any means. Okay, I thought it was Patrick Dempsey coming into it. I was like, he's in this movie? It's him. He's the biggest star. And then this opening here, I'm like, it's the killer POV. And he's the one walking up to the house. Now, of course, again, the original trailer started with the killer coming in and like he murders some grandma type in a kitchen. That's the whole point. It sets the mood. But this is not a John Carpenter movie. I, I want to just reiterate, while there will be references to Friday the 13th and Halloween and all of those through out, I do not believe that this movie closely emulates the style, the technical feel of the old slasher. No, the two influences, though, that Eli Roth said the type of film he was trying to evoke was the original Halloween and Scream. Those were the two he was going for. I think he goes for Scream a lot more than Halloween, though. Agreed. And this opening is just to set up that, yes, he's a deputy at this point. Patrick Dempsey is there. He makes a joke that he's here on official business to see a 15-pound headless golden brown suspect. But the bird he's really looking at is Gina Gershon. And I did not know she was in this cast. When's the last time you've seen Gina? Showgirls. I saw her in person when I went to see The Ghosts of Darkland County, which is a stage performance. Oh, that Stephen King? It is Stephen King and John Mellencamp together doing a musical. The singer? The rock and roller? Yes. Yeah, they made a musical, a stage musical. Yes. They didn't film it, so we don't have to watch it. Okay. <laughs> Thank God. But I kind of <laughs> did want to see it. Sidebar, how was she and the production? I kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music more than the story. I found the story to be lazy. Stephen King didn't turn in his best stuff. John Cougar Mellencamp did. And Gina Gershon was in the cast that I saw. And that's the last time I saw her. And I was like, she's looking rough. I guess it was the makeup for that show, though, because it's supposed to take place in backwoods. Here, I thought she was looking pretty good. I was actually excited to see Gina Gershon. I never expected she'd be, I'm going to be nice and call it a cameo. It's important we notice her. Yeah, I'll be nice and say, yeah, she does look good here. She doesn't look like she's bearing children age, as we'll find out at the end. Like, I laughed at that. I'm like, really? This 60-year-old woman's going to have a kid? Okay. But no, she looks good. They brought her age down a little bit, I guess. Same thing with Patrick Dempsey, by the way. He's a deputy at 60. I mean, come on. But he's sexy. He doesn't look that old. I mean, all right. So they say. So the media would have us believe. I believe in it, man. It blew me away when I realized this was Patrick Dempsey. Anyway, Patrick Dempsey is clearly making eyes at her, and she's a big enough star that, yes, you would otherwise never notice this character in a very large cast, and it's important that you do, because this is setting up the motivations for all the killings we're going to see. They're all sitting around a friendly, middle-class Thanksgiving table, and the head of that table, Mitch Collins, is going to be called away to work, because right, Mark, he's the manager, and they're starting at 8 o'clock with their door buster sale. And is this still a thing? I feel like this definitely was a talking point for people a few years ago that stores, back when people went to box stores, that people didn't get to enjoy their Thanksgiving because they had to go work retail. 
I mean, I know COVID got rid of this. I don't know if it's coming back. I'm not a Black Friday guy. I don't want to go to shopping centers. Give me my Amazon where I can just order stuff safely from my home. But this did feel at least a little bit dated. I did go to some Black Friday events like this like years ago, decade ago when it was huge. Yeah, I don't know post-COVID if people are lighting up at 6 p.m. on Thursday to buy a waffle iron. No, this seems to be something like Stewart said. A few years ago, it was all the talk that Black Friday had creeped into Thursday. It seems to have been shoved back into Friday and now just goes through Cyber Monday. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. It's just all month now. They're already saying Black Friday deals. Yeah, it's all month now. I don't think people realize that Friday is a day and not a month. But yes, <laughs> it still feels timely, though. It's recent enough that opening on Thanksgiving Day feels like something to comment on. And it's kind of cold that the store's owner is sitting right there watching the manager grouse about having to go to work or he's going to be fired. Yeah, Thomas Wright, this actor who plays him, Rick Hoffman, I don't know who this is, but this feels like a very Eli Roth character. Just that mustache alone, like so slimy looking. I don't know what else this guy has done, but perfect casting. He was in Hostel. Okay. He was one of the vacation tourist killers. So yes, that he looks like a suit and a murderer, I think is intentional. He looks like the killer, yeah. When I saw the trailers, I thought he was the killer because he's just so creepy looking. Apparently, his claim to fame is he's on the TV show Suits. Never watched an episode, but a scene stealer there. I didn't recognize him with the mustache, but when I looked him up on Wiki, his face was very recognizable from Hostel. Okay, must be that mustache. I really love this as a concept. I've wanted a Black Friday slasher for so long. Now, Jacob, you say they've made Thanksgiving horror movies before. They made one, one. <laughs> they have never targeted this whole phenomenon, which I stay far away from. I, first of all, Christmas, not my thing. Already been discussed. Go listen to the Home Alone shows. But yes, the fact that people act like animals to get waffle irons is exactly the kind of setup for a satire. And I'm treating Thanksgiving as a comedy with some horror as opposed to an actual suspense movie. This is what I want. I love the setup. There is a Black Friday movie. It came out in 2021. I watched it last year because it has Bruce Campbell in it. It's also Devin Sawa and Michael Jai White. But it is not the Black Friday movie I wanted where it was about <laughs> killings on that day. It was actually an alien invasion movie that just happens to take place in a toy store on Black Friday. And it was so bad that I had a friend leave the house and drive 12 <laughs> hours home to avoid watching this movie. So I don't don't recommend that Black Friday. This is far more along the lines of the Black Friday. I remember, Stuart, when we were in high school, we used to joke about Black Friday saying you could go to the mall and kill somebody and you would never be caught because the crowds are just so full and so boisterous that they would just trample the dead body and it wouldn't be found for hours. This is what I mean. I've wanted this movie my whole life, and I didn't think it was. Again, the trailer told me, Pilgrim going around killing sex-crazed teenagers, that it's actually built around this store massacre. None of that was in the old trailer. They built this, fashioned it into the story. Great idea. Yeah, I agree with you, Stuart. The fact that you have a Black Friday in a Walmart-type place massacre, I'm all there for. Here's my issue with Eli Roth. Like, again, great ideas, like satire. Just really take digs at consumer culture. We'll talk about if he actually does that, but as a setup, it's really good. It's preparing me for a movie that I want to really like. They spend a lot of time with setup. This movie's pretty long. For a slasher movie, it's incredibly long. Almost two hours. 
Yeah, they really will have a lot of characters and a lot of setup. And yeah, you could just have a slasher with people in store aisles. But no, this is all a prologue. We are to understand that what happens kind of in the tradition of the classics, you know, because some camp counselors weren't paying attention to a kid swimming last year, bad things happen at the camp this year. Same thing goes for this store. Plymouth, Massachusetts will have blood spilt because people weren't great on Thanksgiving. They didn't stay home and think about their blessings. They crowded this store. And I think everyone is guilty. We'll have a long digression and discussion about who is really at fault for the blood here. But I think it's on everyone's hands, right? The culture. Yeah, whether or not this happened on Thanksgiving, I mean, you can blame owner Thomas Wright for opening on Thanksgiving, but these crowds exist. I mean, this is straight out of the headlines. People getting trampled at Walmarts. In fact, Walmart could sue because Wright Mart here even has a star in its logo. It's clearly a stand-in for Walmart. And whether or not he opened at midnight on Black Friday, 6 a.m. on Black Friday, or 8 p.m. on Thanksgiving, that crowd was going to stampede for those free waffle irons. Yeah, John Carver's got to go after all of Plymouth if he wants to hold those accountable accountable. Yeah, I think that's what satire does. Satire doesn't let anybody off the hook. A good satire says everybody did it. And so that always makes it tricky. Well, then who do we follow? How do we like the main character if they're culpable of blood? And I think wisely, the sin of Jessica is that she's a rich kid, right? She's privileged. She hangs out with kids who lose their phone and just swipe new ones without thinking about it. And because her dad is rich, they can just walk through the employee entrance and get what they need before this store opens. That's her sin. That's her role in this big massacre is that they incite the crowds like a Romero horde to crash the barricades and come through those glass doors. It is a little confusing with the way this is written. Like, we're saying lots of names. I never caught any names except Scuba throughout this film, like trying to figure out who is who. But yeah, when they're driving along and they're like, oh, I need a new phone. Let's go to Wright Mart to get one. I'm like, huh? You're going to go on Black Friday and stand in those lines? Then it becomes clear they're able to go through that side entrance because, yeah, her dad owns it and just go in. But at first I'm like, you're going with this crowd? That seems like a really bad idea. Who wants to do that? I was thinking the same thing. They're like, we got to be in and out in five minutes. I'm sorry. I used to go Black Friday shopping, Yes, <laughs> you're standing in line for the checkout for a minimum of an hour. And so I'm like, this is not the time to go buy something casually. You have to go and get something targeted and get something on sale. You don't just run in to get a phone. I guess people buy phones at Walmart anyway. I usually go to a cell phone store and try to get it attached to my plan. Get a better discount. Yeah, but I was a little confused by this too. And we're showing these kids are assholes because they park in the handicapped parking spot too. Which I thought was going to come back. You have to unpack the joke. And one thing that I appreciate and I'm surprised about because I thought Eli Roth was somebody that would just throw splatter on the screen is that you do have to work backwards on what you're being told. Yeah, why are these kids going in there? Oh yeah, her dad gives her the privilege. They're going to the movies. Here's another joke. They're going to the movies, but one of the jocks needs his phone because he's going to text his side chick. And he says that in front of his girlfriend. I mean, again, there's a lot of rich irony 
in all of this. The fact that they just treat, you know, phones as so disposable for a large number of consumers. It's really expensive to buy a cell phone here that they can go five minutes before the store opens, buy it, play a game of football, and then tease those people. Like they see them through the window. And one of them is a guy that Evan, the jock, had already gotten in a fight with that they're from rival schools yeah this just helps feed into the bloodthirstiness that's already there on a black friday sale and i'll agree with what you said earlier jacob there are so many characters in this movie we're having them thrown at us some of them who are here in the crowd who i figure are just glorified extras they get their sag card because they have a couple of lines of dialogue but i don't think they're going to ever come back in this movie jessica has so many friends here there were so many people at dinner they're trying to set up a large cast of suspects and they're also giving us enough people to have a good body count but it's more than scream had and i feel like scream had a pretty large cast as far as that goes and so i'm gonna have trouble keeping track of each of the characters as we go through. If it isn't Gina Gershon or Patrick Dempsey or main character Jessica, I'm often struggling for names and trying to figure out. I'm just so shocked that some of these people who are Black Friday shoppers come back later in the movie. I'm shocked and appreciate it. I will add the extra of, I would think that if you were making a retro slasher movie, yes, you set up some heinous people and we know that all of her friends deserve death because they did this. And then you create a scenario where they're isolated and picked off one by one with sex and drugs accompanying all of it. We know that formula quite well. The fact that this, yes, is going to say that there's no detail that doesn't matter and that everyone here, literally everyone has a role and deserves death, I think is to the credit of the film. I'll agree. I like it. Let's get to the standout scene. Like when this rush finally happens, like this is where, yeah, you got to set everyone up. There are so many characters. I don't recognize most of these people. Like the biggest standout to me, because I didn't recognize the sexiest man alive because now he's sexy. But like Tim Dillon, the security guard, this heavy set security guard, he's a great stand up. Nah, not a lot of jokes in this, unfortunately, but I was excited to see him. The joke for him is that he runs away. Yes. He's security, and the second things get unruly, okay, I'm out of here. I'm not paid enough. I mean, there's only two of them. He's smart. Like, he wasn't going to hold that crowd back. But this is what you want to see, right? I could have used, like, another five minutes of just carnage. We don't get as many deaths, but a lot of carnage that, yeah, as soon as that glass starts cracking on these locked doors as they're trying to unlock them, as people are pressed against, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is where I want Eli Roth. Give me that extreme gore. That's a little bit of bad CGI, the window cracking. I'm like, that doesn't actually look very good at all. It's my only problem with the special effects this whole movie. I was so into the moment, I didn't care about the CGI. I wanted it to happen. I like the slow build of it, though. Like, the point is that, that, like, it's the dam just before it breaks. And we have Doug, the other security guard that didn't run away, that's popping Xanax, just kind of meekly fumbling with his key ring and watching that crack go higher and higher. Dramatically, it helps sell what's about to explode. And it may seem extreme. It may seem like Eli Roth going for the gusto with the doors coming down on Doug, the security guard. For You could say the jugular. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> but people really have been trampled at these Black Friday deals. This Doug death is perhaps the most realistic death of the entire movie as people are crazy for... I find this to be one of the best jokes of the movie. They all want this free waffle iron. Like, everybody's going nuts for a waffle iron. Waffle irons are not that expensive. Or desirable. 
They're not, but I've been to a Walmart on a Black Friday, again, decades ago, and people were going crazy over like $10 skillets to cook your pancakes, like things you don't need. You probably already have six of them in your garage that are unused, and people go crazy. You put free on something. Arnie, you've been to Comic-Con. People will stand hours in line for, they don't even know what it is. You're going to get a free button or something at the end of it. It's something primal. That's what I recognize. There's something about when we had to live in caves and forage that we just have this desire to amass. Whatever it is, like, it's mine. I want it. Fight to the death. Yeah, that so many people are willing to go down. And yes, we have a woman who on her normal day is giving out waffles as a diner waitress, now running her shopping cart over Gina Gershon, catching her hair in the wheels and pulling off her scalp. Oh, it's gross. Just to get something she has at her job. That is the point. Yes. I love this death of Gina Gershon. She gets scalped with her hair caught in that shopping cart and the people doing it don't even know. It's not like they're being cruel. They're just so self-absorbed and so into the free waffle irons that they're not paying attention. This movie has tremendous gore that looks completely practical. A lot of viscera, a lot of slime, a lot of just goo as the scalp is being torn from her head. I have a smile on my face when I see this death, even though I'm sad Gina Gershon is out so fast. I'm going to enjoy the gore throughout this, but this Black Friday massacre is the most effective because, yeah, like you said, they don't even know they're scalping her. It's that restaurant lady and someone else, and they're like banging carts trying to get by each other as the hair gets stuck in there. It's something about the not caring. It's just the madness of the crowd. And the horror from that is almost scarier than seeing a slasher going around who wants to kill people, that people can just be so careless and obtuse and absorbed with themselves that the death is going around. The fact that a guy's just jugular is leaking out and someone just takes the waffle iron from his hands. Like there's something nihilistic and disturbing to me about the scene because of the way it plays off so casual. And on Thanksgiving, a holiday meant to commemorate America specifically, our ability to be grateful for the bountiful things that we all enjoy. These are not grateful people. These are not people that say, I have enough. These are people that will not sit and have that meal. They will come and murder others to get items they do not need. Yes, I've always wanted this movie. I think that Eli Roth and his screenwriter have done a great job of setting up the stakes. This doesn't just feel like it's going to be a slasher parody. This feels like social commentary in the way that Romero would do. Now, Jacob, you mentioned the guy whose jugular is slit. What happened to him? Who did that? How did that happen? I missed that kill. When the glass breaks from that really awful CGI you didn't like, there's a piece of glass sticking out from the door and he just gets pushed into it and gets stabbed in the neck and it just starts bleeding. Okay. It's a lot of fast cutting. It's a yes, it is. <laughs> lot of brutality. And I just wondered what happened to that guy. Yeah. And not only is he bleeding from the neck, which would make you think, oh, I need to seek medical attention, but he's still determined to wrestle other people to get to those waffle irons. That he dies going down trying to get the waffle iron. And Doug is bleeding on the ground too, it should be said. And we like our main character. I think we like Jess because she can recognize this is wrong, tell her boyfriend, go help him. And then he, we knew this was coming. It had been established already that he was a star college baseball player. His golden arm is going to get stomped on during this as well. And yeah, that will make him, yes, unable to play and put him high on the suspects list. 
Yeah, that compound fracture where his arm, mid-forearm, turns 90 degrees. Just, if you're a horror fan who likes gore and likes to wince, I think this movie's going to just hit home for you. Yeah, that's something I miss when I'm watching Conjuring films is effective jump scares and wincing just at the gruesomeness of what's being shown to me. I don't feel like I go through those emotions when I'm watching The Nun 2. But this and my wife is jumping at every jump scare. It's scaring her. It makes it fun. Like I feel like that's something people miss from slashers and seeing them with the crowd is there is that fun. Like people, there is going to be a lot of audible responses from the crowd that I'm watching this with. And that makes it more fun. Like I want that as part of a slasher experience. In general, I prefer elevated horror and social commentary horror to just throwing viscera up on the screen, but I don't expect Eli Roth not to throw a viscera on the screen. I can't imagine him making that goosebumps looking movie house with the clock or whatever, Jacob. It's pretty good, actually. (laughs) Does he splatter in that? I just can't imagine him. He does not, and I feel like everything good has nothing to do with Eli Roth. They could have brought another director. You got Jack Black, you got Kate Blanchett, you got actors that know how to have presence on the screen. I don't know how much of Eli Roth's influence is in that film. Eli Roth spatters. You know, that's what he does. You bring him and he's going to splat it on the wall. And yeah, this is exactly the movie that I thought he would make, but framed in the right way. That's what I want to say. It ends in this freeze frame with McDreamy shooting his gun up into the air, standing over the body of, we'll find out later, his lover. When we get to the end, I think the motivations might feel really bizarre had we not been able to frame him and Gina Gershon as victims of this mass panic. We remember her death. We need to know her face and we need to remember her death in order for the ending to make sense. And we do. One year later, we're going to jump ahead and nobody's learned anything. If anything, it's gotten worse. Right, Mart is going to have another 8 p.m. sale and everything else in Jess's life has also gotten worse. Her dad married the bitchy woman that he was engaged to and her boyfriend has disappeared and now she's dating the nerdy schmuck that we didn't want her to be with. Things are bad. Is it wrong that I wanted her to be with the nerdy schmuck? He seemed like a kinder choice than this jock who was ignoring her and signing autographs in the parking lot when he should have been paying attention to his girlfriend. I thought this was actually a trade-up for her. Okay, well, I think he's supposed to be high on the list. Ryan and Bobby are in traditional slashers. Ex-boyfriends are definitely people you should be looking at when you find out that there's a mass killer going around murdering Jess's friends. And yes, Ryan is, again, he can't fit in with this group that he has to buy his way and buy them Super Bowl tickets because he's not a jock. Maybe because I'm not a jock, I would see that as more empathetic. But I think he's supposed to, we see him as someone that uses his money. He's got a weird creepy toady roommate Steve who also feels like he's on the list of suspects. So many people on this suspects list. I will just go ahead and say that this movie has got an overabundance. This is a feast of potential suspects. You could look around and at least nine people are potentially going to be the slasher. And that fact kind of made me just want to appreciate the film and watch it and not try to actively guess. I do towards the end, but yeah, the fact that there's so many people and like, I don't even know most of their names. I just know whatever their type they are, jock, rich girl, that type of thing that I'm like, yeah, I'm here for the kills. I know there's a mystery. If a clue jumps out at me, I'll consider that. But yeah, there's so many people. I just felt like I didn't have a chance at guessing who it was. 
I love a good whodunit. I love trying to figure it out. And that's one of the fun things for me with the Scream films. Knowing coming in that Scream was a influence for Eli Roth, I knew this was going to be a question of who's behind the mask. I'm trying to pay attention and I'm trying to guess who it is by the same token because there are so many people. I'm also struggling just to keep track of who's who and what their relationship is with everybody else and catch all the names so that I can talk about them on this podcast. It was quite a challenge with everybody in this film. Yeah, it's overstuffed, but uh, maybe that's not a bad thing. I mean, you want your turkey to have some stuffing in it. And if they were just going to do a rudimentary slasher, most slasher movies of the 80s didn't really bother with the murder mystery. Who could it have done? You know, that was something that went away after Friday the 13th won and didn't come back until Scream. And so that they're going to revive that. And this feels as much knives out as it does Friday the 13th, I think is why this movie is so long and has such a big cast. You could pare this movie down and just have the friends being picked off, but they've chosen to make it a more intellectual game. And one of the things that happened the year before is Evan, during the stampede, jumped up on one of the checkout counters and started filming everything. And that has now made its way online. People are talking about that. Now, I think there's only one way that could make its way online. Evan had to post it. At one point, Jess says, I know you didn't post it, but nobody else could have gotten that off his phone. Or he shared it with all his friends and one of them posted it. But yeah, I assumed he would have done that. And I guess this has to happen. This is where, okay, trying to work backwards once you find out who the killer is. We'll find out there's no security footage that could have gone viral. No one actually knows what happened except this one friend filmed it because that security footage magically disappeared. Like it got erased and that's why Patrick Dempsey like... I think that's why he wants to get in with these kids so he could get that extra information so he knows who to target throughout the film. If they were storming the Capitol building, per se, we have facial (laughs) recognition software. We can eventually name names and know who's who. But this is small town America. This is a modest store that, yeah, just has an old CCTV camera system. You know, would they really prosecute each other? I think there's a shame that comes from this kind of behavior. When people act badly, I think it's hard for them to fess up to it. So I don't know. Yes, we will learn that the footage was erased and therefore deputy turned sheriff Eric cannot prosecute. But knowing that he wants to prosecute the way that he does, I don't know that he'd want them to go to jail. I think he's got a different idea about what justice looks like and it means putting on a John Carver mask. Again, that's the unpacking. You won't really know that until you get to the end of the movie. At the beginning here, yeah, it just looks like the life of a teenager. And I think one way that it's easy to stay orientated in this movie is that we know Jess. You might not know the names of any of her friends or anything else, but we understand and everything leads back to Jess. She's the daughter of the owner of the store, and she is one of the people that helped instigate the riot that happened through the door. Here she is trying to film a, quote, family commercial with her new mom and her dad at a Plymouth Rock site, and it's been vandalized. Someone came in and spray-painted Fight Mart and is, yeah, now sending viral messages, tagging them in the video, making her the focus. More importantly, he stole that, or whoever did this vandalism stole the axe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I mean, nitpick, but you wouldn't be filming your Black Friday commercial on that Thanksgiving day. You'd have to film it a month in advance. 
Well, it's a couple days before. It is advanced. It'll take a couple days to get to Thanksgiving. Yeah, but when I worked retail, like, we planned for Black Friday, like, in June or July. Like, you don't do it at the week before. Yeah, yeah, you film it in the summer. Yes, I get it. It is not Thanksgiving Day yet. There will be a lead up to it. But the point is, they're not going to let the terrorists win. We will have our Black Friday sale on Thursday night. And Thomas is just unrepentant. To the daughter, who does feel remorseful, he looks awful because he won't back down and he won't close the store. But 20 minutes in, we need a kill. And this movie is aware of its formula and will give us the act-turning kill. The new killer arrives. We've had waitress Lizzie, who was, again, the person maybe most responsible for killing Gina Gershon with that card, now closing up shop at her diner. She's been handing out masks to everyone all day long. John Carver, that is not a historical figure I'm aware of. Do you guys know anything about the historical figure? Is this a historical figure? I thought Carver, like, that's the joke. It's a slasher movie. Right. It's too good to be true. Like, there actually was a guy named Carver that mattered to Plymouth Rock Settlement. It's true. I looked it up. The internet tells me so. But yes, that he's going to end up being the Carver and wearing this mask is almost too perfect. Yeah, it is kind of funny that this guy was, for those who don't know, he was a pilgrim on the Mayflower who was one of the founders of Plymouth Colony. Now, according to the trailer for this movie, and I don't know if this is true, but there were a lot of mysterious deaths during John Carver's life, like of the other pilgrims, and those mysterious deaths didn't stop until Carver died. Mm, I smell prequel. I don't know. They ate bad corn. It was cold. There's sickness. Like Right? It's really easy to die back then. I mean, really, really not so mysterious, but I get your point. Yes, there's enough about him. And again, just the name that he's named John Carver. There probably were other people that founded this town. Plymouth. We could have the Plymouth guy. No, no. If the guy's named Carver, he's the guy putting on the mask, picking up the axe. And while, because there's so many people I said, I'm not really actively looking for who the killer is, I am looking around from time to time. Like when we get to this restaurant and Lizzie is handing out these masks, like I notice like someone will put it on. We won't quite see their face. I'm like, oh, is that going to be him? I'm like, no, she's handing these out to everyone. So again, there's fun here. Like, yeah, I'm not going to try to go Sherlock Holmes on this, but I am like picking up on the little red herrings they're putting out there to throw you off the trail. It's both. It's a mystery. And we have a whole scene at a table where they're talking about, you know, all the suspects. And then there's just the slasher, which again, the lights go off, Lizzie's closing up. And suddenly we have another moment from the old trailer where it was a guy employee, I believe, that was put in the fryer and then is stuck against the freezer door wall. I don't even think it's a fryer. I think it's just the dishwater and <laughs> to make them freeze to that door. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, it's the Christmas story joke, right? <laughs> if you're wet and then you stick your tongue on the pole, like you'll have to peel off your skin to get it off. Look at you busted out Christmas references. <laughs> <laughs> I've had to. I want to credit this movie because the trailers did show some of this death. Most of what's in the trailers is from the first half hour of this movie, though. This is not one of the movies where if you've seen the trailer, you've seen the movie. This woman getting stuck to the freezer door was in there, but... I'm talking about the original trailer, though. No, even the new trailer. Yeah. That may be. I never saw a trailer for this movie, for this incarnation of Thanksgiving. But back when they made Grindhouse, before they had a plot, is my point. Before they knew what this movie was going to be about, they knew they wanted a death in which somebody had to peel their face off of the freezer door. Yeah, but this was really prominent in the new trailer for the official movie, this freezing to the door. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
But when Lizzie goes running outside and Carver's got to run her down, pin her against that trash bin that falls down and cuts her in half. Look, I'm in LA. We're an emotional movie theater crowd. We're not like you Midwesterners who sit there in silence. People are cheering, clapping. My wife was going wild. People were clapping for this death. And I'm like, yes, this is the kind of slasher I want to be in. People are cheering it on. This was so fun. I imagined her getting smashed by the car. I did not expect her to be cut in half. No. (laughs) And have all those entrails just spewing out there. I'm like, okay, I forgot what it meant to be in an Eva Lie Roth film until I was (laughs) in this scene. Yeah, I mean, this is the easy part. In my mind, maybe I'm giving this less credit because this is exactly the movie I thought Eli Roth would make. Of course, he's going to kill people in incredibly graphic ways. This is more gruesome than anything in Death Wish. Like, we haven't seen this Eli Roth for a while, I feel. Well, I don't watch Eli Roth. Again, I haven't seen most of his work. I haven't seen him since, yeah, not counting Death Wish, since Grindhouse. So, yeah, what he's been doing, I'm just not drawn to it. It's usually, like, hostile. Just to give a sidebar to a series we haven't done yet, I felt like that movie was repetitive in using the gore. Wasn't very scary. And here, I feel like, yeah, there's more emotional investment. And some of that is because we remember this bitch deserving it from how she acted on Thanksgiving set. There's a glory in wanting to see her lower half stuck on the star of the right mark of the half off sale yeah great joke Mm-hmm. That's an important part of a slasher is we've got to unsecretly be aligned with the killer wanting them to kill while at the same time with our final girl hoping her to get away. It's the push and pull of those two instincts that really drive the best slasher films. So she had a fun death and her bottom half is put up on the star of the right mart. I thought it was her whole body. We're going to find out later the top half went someplace else. But he just kind of shoved that star literally up her ass. Again, this is Eli Roth. This is why I don't love Eli Roth, is because I feel like he would make 90 minutes of people being felleted and impaled and all by houseware objects. It, it just, that to me is the easy stuff. Yeah, we'll get another death. Let's just go ahead and get it out of the way. The guard that ran away, you know him. Manny was the character. I don't know who this guy is. Tim Dillon. But yes, he gets scared, wants to run down. He's still running. He's trying to go to the Dominican Republic before he can go outside to his Uber. The carver shows up there and puts a, what's that, like a turkey carver, an electric turkey carver in his stomach? Just a meat knife, an electric meat knife, shoves it in him and then has some kind of garrote. This isn't really a Thanksgiving death when he gets beheaded by some kind of wire, at least not a implement I'm familiar with for Thanksgiving. No, this is just a way to remove that head quickly. Yeah, removing heads was a big part of the 2007 trailer. Every death involved a beheading. And yes, that he'll try and set some of these people on a live-streamed Thanksgiving table, that there's a place set for everyone that the killer feels most responsible for Amanda's death. Yeah, what movie did we review, Happy Birthday to Me, where you get a bunch of corpses around a birthday table? It felt like it was an homage to that, maybe, setting up these corpses around a Thanksgiving table. Sure. This guy ran away and didn't provide security. And the other woman was the one that was pushing the cart that probably killed Amanda. So again, those Amanda victims are definitely being targeted, although probably the whole town was at that store. This killer only cares about who killed Amanda. Yeah, because he's nice to the cat. He's going to feed that cat of this security guard. He's not going to leave that starving. I love that moment where he feeds the cat. 
That's why Patrick Dempsey is the sexiest man alive. He's a cat guy. Women love that. But again, the more interesting part, and I'm curious to see how this lands with you, is when we're not doing that. We're not cutting people in half and sticking them on signs. Do you care when Jess is, yeah, trying to play the game of find the footage? She knows that her stepmom erased the cameras to kind of clear the store of implication so that it didn't become a legal matter, but that there's this backup server and she's going to go and get that. All this drama between the boyfriends comes out of her working with Bobby to find footage that will implicate Ryan. I mean, I feel like this film, yeah, when you're not killing people in really fun ways, it needed something more. And I thought this security camera footage that they dig up was going to be it. It's going to end up being a security guard was selling Adderall. That's it. But I thought there was going to be some big mystery that throughout the film was going to be revealed on the security footage. Agreed. There needed to be much more going on during the non-killing scenes. Here, Bobby returns. It makes him a chief suspect. Too obvious. But by the same token, I'm like, why is he back? And why is she so willing to team up with him after he just ghosted her like that? Because she really loves him. You know, this is a cliche. These are not things you ask in an 80s slasher movie and ever get answers either. I mean, these are typically thin characters that do stupid things that get them killed and you're glad. So I guess what I'm asking is, now that they're trying to make a real movie with real motivations and characters you might have more affection for, how's it landing? It sounds like it's not landing with you guys. Yeah, one of the things I thought about was if you did scratch up the picture and add some grain and cigarette burns, all that kind of stuff, this would have felt more like a Friday the 13th. And that first original Friday the 13th is not a good movie, but I have a lot of fun watching that, like how bad everyone is at acting. Like there is campiness to that film that I enjoy. And I was thinking about this, like if they added those grain and, and all that stuff, would I have gone along with this more? Because it looks so slick and new. I'm having more issues with these characters. They're just, yeah, but they feel like they would fit into any old slasher. It's just the aesthetic is shiny on this. It's a Scream aesthetic. It looks like the new Scream movie and not at all like a old print of Friday the 13th 3. Here's the thing is, I'm not having huge problems with this movie during the non-kill moments because I am engaged with the whodunit. I am trying to find clues. I am trying to find motivations. My problem may be, and again, because I knew that we'd have to come in the next day and talk about this movie for a couple of hours, I might be overthinking it. And that's causing me more problems because normally I could just roll with recognizing the people on screen by their most basic, extreme physical traits. That one's got blonde hair. That one's got brunette hair. That's all you need to know. Exactly. Yeah. And here I'm trying to be more engaged and I'm trying to get more out of it. And the film's not great at delivering that. So I'm nitpicking, but it's not impacting my fun time at this film. All right. So I'm hearing this movie is going well. There's no problem. I mean, there's problems, but for a slasher, there's no problems. Exactly. Right, well, that's where you should live. We shouldn't try to destroy slasher movies for being what they are. If this thing is doing what slasher movies do... Well, that's what I'm saying. But because we've talked so much about aesthetics and this is definitely tapping into something old, it was based on something old grindhouse. Like there is going to be that clash. I know I've talked about this before. My daughters, if they sense any grain on the picture, they're like, oh, this is old. I hate it already. So that's definitely a thing with new versus older audiences. Yeah, let's face it. I couldn't name the characters in the original Friday the 13th no. or any of the Friday the 13ths either. Yeah, right. And by the way, they're terrible films. <laughs> they aren't good. Most of them are not recommends for me. Agreed, but they're fun. 
But I'm hearing that for Arnie, I know probably more than any of us, you really do have a lot of affection for those films because of their flaws, because they are these shoddy, silly things, right? Not necessarily because they're shoddy. I think a lot of them I saw before I really realized how cheap they were in certain respects. And so I was able to appreciate them. And now there's a lot of nostalgia that I have for that. So there's a window of time when you're young, when you see a movie, that it can become beloved. And then after that, the window closes (laughs) and they just become cheap knockoffs. I mean, I'm asking. It's a question. I don't know. Like, can a movie be as bad as it was in the 80s? And would we accept it now that we're middle-aged? I don't think so. I think that we are more sophisticated and movies have to be more sophisticated. And not just we as in us on the show. We as in the general movie-going populace is more sophisticated than it was in 1980. Right, which is why I think Eli Roth is doing this correct. He is making this much more sophisticated than any slasher movie I've ever seen in the 80s. There's not a single one of them that would have so many characters, so many red herring plots, so many digressions and, you know, who's who. It's almost like he's seen them all, stuffed them all into this bird and said, eat up. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, definitely Scream feels much more like the influence than any of those older 80s slashers as far as the aesthetics and storytelling goes. Like, that is the way he's chosen. And I I prefer that older stuff, but I'm willing to go with this. It's fine. We talk about satire at the beginning. I feel like a lot of that goes away after that Black Friday scene. It's always an issue with Eli Roth. Like, he's not as funny as I think he thinks he is. And that's always a little disappointing. Here's what I will say. The limited films that I've seen his work in, what he usually allows room for are strangeness. Yeah. Like I remember Cabin Fever. It's a 90 minute inward joke. It's this long form inward joke that he builds up to with a kid doing some weird kung fu too. It's bizarre. Oh, come on. Their fingering scene is one of the most shocking things I've seen in film ever. It just still gives me nightmares. Yeah, but what's with that kid doing kung fu in the middle of it? And screaming about pancakes. I love it. I don't remember anything about the movie. The fingering you talk about, Arnie, nothing. The only thing I remember is the kid with the long hair doing flips. That, to me, says Eli Roth. I will stop following formula to give digressions. And we will have that here. I believe that there are characters here that serve absolutely no purpose other than to slow down the movie and give you some local color. Maybe they're suspects. Maybe you think that this McCarty guy, who's kind of like Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused, he's a predator of children in that he'll sell alcohol and weapons to them. And yes, he's throwing a party and kicking people out when they don't know Black Sabbath and his references. This is the kind of thing that you would definitely cut if you were an editor being pressured to deliver a horror movie, a slasher movie, a tight movie. I agree, but some of these diversions work. I like that we have Chekhov's gun salesman here. I think that's why this character's here is to introduce guns into the film. But yeah, as flavor, I I feel like a lot of modern films, like because they want to be, I hate all these words, but PC or whatever, they want to offend the least amount of people. They lose a lot of flavor and spice that you got in older movies. That maybe isn't the most accepted thing these days, but I like that. Like I want this to feel lived in and real and have all the bumps of real life. And so, yeah, this character serves no point. I like him though. Like it's a nice diversion. It's because we have Eli Roth and maybe a studio that doesn't give a shit (laughs) and is not pressuring him to make something more commercial because they know this is not commercial, that he is just going to give a lot of room to small teenage moments. Again, this movie feels as much indebted to Dazed and Confused as it does to Friday the 13th. 
The fact that there's so much about a party where teenagers are getting drunk, like this was a staple when we were growing up. Go watch the original Teen Wolf. There's a really weird teenage sex party scene in that film. And like, I just felt like that's how being a teenager is when I was a kid. And now like I watch what my kids watch and I don't know, it feels sanitized. It doesn't feel like rebellious teens anymore in films. Yeah, it's gone from being more extreme than what teenage life was to being less extreme than what teenage life is. Neither one presents a realistic picture of teenage life as I understand it. So, yeah, I liked this character. I took him as a suspect, you know? I felt like he was possibly one of the ones, like, we've seen the Carver now. And here's the thing, is he's wearing the John Carver mask, but he's also wearing, like, a dancer's unitard. He's in this tight black suit. Well, he's like covering up his head too, so you can't see his hair. Uh-huh. And what I can tell is he's tall and very slender and there's no breasts, so if they made it a woman, <laughs> I was going to scream at this movie for cheating. And they're very slender, so if it was one of the bulkier characters or more muscular characters, I was going to scream for cheating. And they do put Patrick Dempsey in bulky coats in this movie, so it's kind of hard to see his sexiest man alive physique. <laughs> I too was looking at the body type of Carver and trying to match it up with the different characters because there's one here that's working, help promoting this party, Jacob. And I'm like, wow, he's too short though. That's going to be another cheat. But like he was on there for a little bit till I saw that body type of Carver. Right. Yes. That's what I mean. Are all these characters really viable suspects? Is Ryan a suspect because he was there the night and buying Adderall from the guard that was killed? Could that be why the guard was killed? That seemed like a really weird reasoning when they brought that up. Right, yes. I feel like a lot of this stuff, if you were trying to cleanly deliver a satire of 80s formula slasher movies, you would excise all of this stuff. But if you wanted to bring in the spirit of what it was like to be a young person in an 80s, or not even an 80s movie, but just to be, as I was, a young person in the 80s, a lot of these characters that are floating around in here. Jacob, yeah, he's writing an essay for the jock and then screws him over by having the essay that the teacher published on her blog be the thing he reads to the class. That's a scene we don't need, but it's a scene that helps me like Evan and Jacob and this world. And so what I would offer is that Eli Roth, I don't think he can elevate horror. No. <laughs> but he's inflating horror in a way that it feels beyond the borders of slasher. And I'm wondering if you guys appreciate that or wish this movie would get on with it. I'm enjoying the jokes. I really like when they're reading their essays in class, that character Chad, who is appropriately named Chad, saying he's <laughs> never going to celebrate Thanksgiving, and then pulling up his shirt to show off his abs in class. Yeah, that was funny. And then Jacob sells to Evan one of the essays, which is something the teacher herself wrote in her blog, really just targeting him for punishment because he never paid for the papers that have already been written. I enjoyed these scenes. I liked getting to know these characters a little bit more. I always feel that's better when you have some time with the characters before you kill them. Yeah, and I feel like it's almost like Fast Times or Ferris. It is a different kind of teen movie from the 80s. Eli Roth grew up watching everything that was youth-orientated in the 80s, and that meant slashers, and it also meant other things. And he's combined both things to make this very overinflated project that I thought was just supposed to be a slasher parody, but is proving to be more of a love letter to high schoolers of yore. Although it is modern, because they have cell phones. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there's a yeah mixed time frame here, anachronisms that, I don't know. I'm not a young person. I didn't see this with a young person. I don't know if young people are going to like this, but I, as a person who was young in the 80s and a consumer of these kinds of movies, I'm really feeling nostalgic for it. I'm liking this movie for its elongated pace and its digressions. I like some of the digressions, not all of them. It could be tightened up a little bit. The jokes could be punched up a bit more. Like It could be tightened by half an hour, but what I'm saying is I wouldn't do it. I'm saying I wouldn't cut out a half hour, maybe 10 minutes. There are good jokes here, like already called out with lifting up the shirt as he crying and the girls touching his abs. Like there are good jokes here. Yeah, we could always talk about pruning, cutting a scene here or there for personal taste. But in general, I would be looser with the editing blade because it's creating this good vibe. Otherwise, if this were just a joke about how dumb slasher movies are, I would be over this movie. I wouldn't care. I just thought it was going to be more about consumerism with that opening Black Friday scene. And that kind of goes away because everyone's guilty here. I mean, we're all consumers. So I would have liked, again, more of that satire. The, the fact that it goes more into a teenage movie. I don't hate any of this. I would take this cut over a 90-minute cut where they cut all this stuff out. I'll put it that way. I think this could be better, but I like what I'm getting. What I think they really could have cut, but they put in here only because it was in the Thanksgiving trailer in Grindhouse, is the next set of murders where I didn't even recognize the character that we're about to follow. He's got very little screen time. He goes to a different school than Jess and all her friends. Yeah, this one confused me. No, no, Evan definitely calls him out at the night of the Black Friday sale. He does, but again, it's a face you see for a little bit. And then when you cut back, I don't remember these people. So I'm like, which set of friends are they? There's a blonde cheerleader. I thought that was their blonde cheerleader friend, but it's a different cheerleader that's blonde. Like I figured it out eventually, but it is a little confusing because there's so much stuff here. Yeah, exactly. And you don't really need to bring this character back for this murder, except there was a cheerleader jumping on a trampoline who got murdered in the Grindhouse trailer 17 years ago. And so they're going to recreate it here. You could have recreated this, though, with Evan and Gabby. You could have killed them instead of having them be kidnapped. But instead, we're going to bring in this guy and his cheerleader girlfriend in order to get somebody stabbed from beneath a trampoline. So to jump to the end, what I understand the Carver to say is that there are two kinds of people that he's persecuting. The people that he's killing right away and then the people that he wants to put at the table and make them eat it. I think that this Lonnie guy and Amy, because they were at the front of the door, they were the ones pushing the doors open. He considers them more directly responsible for Amanda's death than others, than Evan even. So, I mean, debatable. By the same token, he does call Jess and her friends the VIPs, the one who got inside and waggled their fingers at all the people waiting outside and antagonized them. Mm -hmm. He calls them the VIPs, but he is going to kill Yulia. You know, Yulia does not make it alive to that dinner table either. And he's going to take some clear axe swipes at Jessica. So it's like, I don't buy that excuse that comes up at the end as to why he keeps certain people alive. I think it's bullshit. Does he kill Julio, though, because that whole thing gets messed up and he gets walked in on and he's got to throw her at that bus saw and cut those fingers off? I don't know. It's a fun death, but agreed. it just kills his M.O. Well, I never understood his M.O. Why are some alive? Why are some dead? You're saying the VIPs get to live, but they have to eat the mom. 
No one gets to live. But yeah, they want to make the point that you dine on these lower people. You're both responsible. You tell the people, you know, you bait them and then they come and that combination. I mean, you know, the motive is the motive. It's not great. It's as bad as, you know, Jason Voorhees' mother killing camp counselors because her son drowned years ago. I mean, I understand the basic motive. You want to get revenge for your girlfriend dying, but why some are alive, some are dead. That's convoluted. It's not clear, but whatever. We get to see someone cooked. We get to see some cannibalism. Yeah, we want some people gathered around an end table to bear witness to the feast that he's created. But yes, one thing I will say that I find pretty consistent about this movie is all the stuff they've plucked from the old trailer is not done with the same laugh out loud impact as the new version, right? Like the trampoline, case in point. That's a really funny bit. When she's going up and down and doing the splits in the air and you see that knife coming through the trampoline, you know where that's going to be. It like hits her foot and then she falls down again on it and bounces on it, but it's not going up her privates like it does in that trailer. Yes, right. It's not a sex joke in the way that it was in the trailer. And is that intentional? I feel like it's intentional. I feel like there's a choice to pull away from being outrageous. Agreed. And maybe that's not the right instinct, or maybe that is the right thing to do if you're going to make a two-hour movie. Because if three minutes felt like 90 minutes from that trailer, you would be exhausted. You wouldn't be able to take a movie that was splatter every 30 seconds. Another thing that confused me, though, is the next set of attacks, because we do go back to the high school. Julia is there with Evan and Gabby. They're in Hanover. It should be said they're in the rival school. They came there for a away game. Oh, okay. okay sure. <laughs> they were supposed to play football with the Hornets. They're the Musketeers. And then they're just sitting there and, and the jocks are just bummed. They don't get to play. They're like, oh, who cares if one of them got murdered in a gymnasium on a trampoline with his girlfriend? We still want to play football. And that's when Evan and Amy get grabbed. I think they're chloroformed or something. They're walking down the hall. They're sneaking off to have sex. John Carver just pops out and cut to the next scene. <laughs> yeah, he pops out, takes them. Yeah, that's the thing is he pops out. We cut to the next scene. I'm like, are they dead? Were they found bodies? We see the cops there and they're talking to Jessica later. And I'm like, what is going on here? Was that off screen deaths? It's very confusing to me that they were kidnapped. In the moment, but not now, right? You understand? No, not now. I'm talking about as I'm watching the movie, I'm trying to figure out if they're dead. Obviously, I see them alive later and I'm not an idiot. Yeah, well, this is what I mean about unpacking. You are shown a lot of things that like doesn't square up and then eventually you go, oh, to me, that's gratifying. That is more intellectually engaging than most slasher movies that are just about, we know the killer, we know the victim. Even before the movie rolls, we know who's going to get it and we're just there to watch the inevitable. Here I'm playing games about what's going to happen. Are they even dead? Who's the killer? I think it would have been more satisfying to see them be abducted and wonder about that instead of just wondering if they're dead or if they're alive. I mean, honestly, I'm not asking if they're dead and their bodies haven't been found. I'm wondering if there's a body bag right off screen and I'm supposed to get that this was two more murders. Well, that's why Jess is walking down the hall. It's a suspense scene. It's like something out of a thriller that Jess gets a text from Gabby's phone and is walking into the trap and we get, you know, what's kind of a silly joke of her turning Jersey Girl hairspray on the guy when they get to the, I guess in this high school, they teach beautician skills. There's a whole like uh, beauty parlor, vocational lab. 
my sister went to beauty school, but it was an off-campus thing. But it was something she got high school credit for. So yeah, in high school, she graduated high school with a beautician license because of it. Wow, I'm being educated. I didn't know this was a real thing. But yes, they have one in the school and it's a place to fight the carver. And she gets away because of hairspray because, you know, Jersey girls love big hair. You mentioned Julia. I didn't notice her until her father shows up and says she's going to Florida. And I think it's okay. I think it's okay that we didn't notice her much in the Thanksgiving attack. We can only process so much at one time. She was there. I think she's the girlfriend of Scuba. I think so. They're sitting next to each other at that diner when they get the Super Bowl tickets. Yeah, he's scuba because his last name is Diving. Yeah, I think that's a double play. And again, maybe this is not funny, but you got to unpack this one. That He's the token black character and he's dying or diving. So, you know, the black character dies first. It's either a joke on diving and scuba or dying in a horror movie. But you could spend some time trying to figure it out. They're jokes that take longer to reach a bloom. Don't explain the joke. That never makes a joke good. If you have to explain it, move on to another joke. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, a lot of the humor here is based on that kind of dawning realization as opposed to the thrill of blood spatter in your face. And again, not what I was expecting from Eli Roth. I'm impressed that he's going for different kinds of comedy. But Julia's death here is one of my favorites. This was in the trailer. One of the few later scenes that showed up in the trailer was the corn picks in the ears. And I thought that was a fun way of using a table implement as a weapon of death is to puncture her eardrums with the corn cob holders and she's crawling around. And then when she gets on that table, the fingers getting cut off bother me more than her insides. You know, the realistic stuff of losing a digit to a table saw bothers me more than seeing all the fake entrails. You know, the corn holders with the smiley faces on them, that almost feels scary movie to me. I'm like, that's a risky, are we being too madcap? I mean, this is called Thanksgiving. You gotta have some Thanksgiving related murders. Yes, you do. But again, in Seeking the Tone, it wouldn't have been a risk to put that in the 2007 trailer, but it's a risk to put it in this more thoughtful murder mystery that suddenly we have a woman with corn holders in her ears going deaf. Is it because of the smiley faces? I feel like this is appropriate for this film. Maybe the smiley faces put it over the top for you. I don't feel like this film has been all about like killing someone with cranberry sauce. No, but it should feel a little bit like that. Yeah, and again, how much you ladle that in is an art. I'll use that word. Yeah, this feels like him being at his most Eli Roth. (laughs) And yeah, I agree. It works because it really is wince-inducing to think about falling onto a table saw. Like that is just something when I just saying those words makes me like my back arches and I just go, ugh. And then we get to the parade. And I'm wondering if this parade is going to be the climax of the film. It seems like that would be a good place to have your climax. Everybody's at this parade. They've decided to go ahead with the parade as a way to draw out the murderer. And we're going to get another scene straight out of that 2003 trailer. Yeah, it can't be the climax, Arnie, because there's no way they'll make Thanksgiving without having a naked body trussed and baked and put on the dining room table. We know that the killer keeps sending them viral footage of this Thanksgiving dinner. And again, if his motive is you shouldn't be out at the stores, you should be sitting around with your friends being grateful for what you have done. Yeah, that's got to be the climax. But yes, this is memorable from the trailer. 
Yeah, I like this parade scene. It causes a lot of suspense because at first they want to cancel it. And they're like, no, we got to do this to draw out the killer. And there's all those John Carver masks everywhere. So yeah, as they're parading down the street, they're looking around and we see the cops hassling some of those guys with John Carver masks. But I did notice, I'm like, why is there someone with a clown mask? That's pretty sus right there. It looks like it's from Killer Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> the style of that clown mask. But I don't believe it is. Okay. The reference I got was actually the Dark Knight. It looked to me like the Joker masks from the beginning when they're all robbing the bank. It looked like the grumpy Jokers. It didn't look like Heath Ledger Joker, but the other Joker masks. I do wonder if it's a call out. There's a cult series. It's got two films, Terrifier, that stars Art the Clown. I wonder if it was a nod to that. That seems to have a lot of gorehounds excited, that franchise. Oh, yeah. A lot of calls for us to do that series. Yeah. <laughs> Eli Roth loves horror. And yes, there's a lot of clowns throughout horror. It, I mean, yes. What I'm saying is I don't think that he's taken it from an established killer clown. I think that this is just a rubber mask of a killer clown. And this is Carver switching it up. The real killer is there shooting people with the trank dart. And again, unpacking. You think people are dead. And then a minute later, you realize, no, just knocked out. But yes. Well, he's also chopping off that turkey's head, that guy in the mascot. I don't know if he was at the Black Friday sale. I didn't recognize him. I think so. Okay. I believe when Jess looks over the footage, you know, she eventually goes, falls right into Patrick Dempsey's plan. He begged her, if you know anything secret, tell me. And she eventually prints off all those photos. Yeah, I think that this guy, you wouldn't normally think the guy that dresses up as a turkey and is fun on the Thanksgiving parade is a part of a massacre, but he's implicated because of the photos she turned in. So thus, he gets beheaded right here in public, right when everyone's, you know, cheering him on, beheaded. And even better, because I knew this one from the trailer, but the better death is, I think it's the mayor is sitting in a car and the float behind him, the Mayflower goes out of control. Oh, Jesus Christ, this death. And <laughs> takes his head off. That was gruesome. <laughs> All the blood, the fact that it impales his head and comes out the front. That one was a very fun death. I had a big smile on my face and they keep cutting back to it too. It's not like you get a very brief glimpse. They just keep going back to it and showing you more blood. If you are a gorehound, Eli Roth will indulge you. Yeah, that's what Eli Roth used to mean. And what the compliment I can give to the scene is that it gives all of that. If you are here for the spatter, it gives you all of that. And there's genuine suspense. As Jacob said, we're looking at the crowd. Who's that guy? We've had Mitch, you know, the widow of Gina Gershon, like glowering in the alley. And he runs out there, but he's just doing it to protest. It's just a peaceful protest holding up. It's Thanksgiving, not thanks buying. Uh, but, you know, these moments, do create a recognizable sense of tension. I noticed in my crowd, in myself, there were times when people were whispering, leaning in. It works not just as comedy, but as suspense, which is a trick I was not expecting. I know Eli Roth can make jokes about body parts falling off. I didn't think that he knew how to scare people. And we're going to get one of the more suspenseful scenes next, because as you mentioned, Jess, her dad, and her stepmom got tranquilized, not shot. And we're going to follow the stepmother on a pretty elongated death here. She's going to wake up as she's being basted. And there's almost something fetishistic about it, because I guess he's starting with her feet, and I associate feet with feet fetishes. It's that Tarantino influence. You got to focus on the feet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's a MILF. I mean, she's really hot. Some of this, again, you do that in slashers. Even as you're killing, you also exploit. You show their boobs too. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not in this movie, though. Only in the trailer back in 03. Yes. A kinkiness to this. And Kathleen kind of deserves it. Again, keep in mind, it was her idea. She's the wicked stepmom. Yeah. The husband would have probably closed the store. She was the one that whispered in his ear, honey, make your employees open up Thursday night and you'll make more money. And he gave her that credit at the original Thanksgiving. She definitely deserves to be the bird on the table. But it takes a while. She was being basted and that she runs for it and almost escapes. But the carver catches her, puts her in the oven. And of course, the biggest laugh line my whole audience laughed is when he opens the oven back up and puts in that thermometer, the thing that pops when your turkey is done. Yeah, the punchline. Again, the old Eli Roth. The things that I would expect Eli Roth to do, put a meat thermometer in a woman and it pops when she dies. Absolutely. But here's the thing, Stuart. I understand that Eli Roth is going to do that, but I would expect that in any Thanksgiving slasher. Like, if you're saying we're a Thanksgiving slasher and we're going to roast a woman like a turkey, you better stick that thermometer in there. I want that scene. Yeah, but what I also want to compliment is while that is funny, there is also something ghastly. I mean, this really does feel, it slows down enough for you to feel what it would be like to actually burn inside an oven. Lingering shots of her like kind of pushing at the door. It's a Rendell oven, which is the name of the co-screenwriter. Jeff Rendell co-wrote the old trailer and his name is on this. So I think it's a credit to him that they're roasting in the Rendell oven, but it just feels realistic in a way. Like, I mean, it's easy to make body parts fall off and shock and explode in fountains of blood that would never actually happen. It's a different thing to put you in the mindset of, wow, this is what it would be like to be baked alive in an oven. Of course, I love the punchline later on when the carver is going to talk. He's going to be like, Kathleen is dead. She's been cooking all day. Freddy Krueger would be proud. But yes, it's not the same impact, right? When her body is dumped on that table, it's not the laugh line that it was in the 2007 trailer when you see that trust body. And again, I think that's intentional. I think this is a different style of movie. I want to say elevated, but I know that's not the right word. And not elevated. (laughs) They've expanded beyond the one joke premise of that trailer. Well, and I think there's something about cooking someone in cannibalism. Maybe we'll talk about this when we do Green Inferno. But that feels like a step beyond a slasher. Like we're used to fingers getting cut off with that table. So all that stuff, like that's fun. That's expected. It does feel like you're taking it to a different level when you're carving up someone's thigh and feeding it to their husband. (laughs) I mean, that is a different level than I'm usually on, for sure. But yes, maybe not for slasher movies. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know. I feel like cannibalism is still taboo in a lot of slashers. (laughs) Uh, Texas Chainsaw really pioneered that. Again, that's one franchise. Did Freddy ever eat anyone? Did Jason ever eat anyone? I feel like cannibalism is a step beyond. But again, expect it in a Thanksgiving film. I want to see someone cook like a turkey and eat. It's worth reflecting. Part of why that is, is because as the slasher genre became more popular, they made slasher movies that made us empathize with the killer. We loved Freddy. We wanted him to make jokes murdering people. Here, I don't think that we're rooting for the Carver. I don't think we should be rooting rooting for the carver. We still want Jess to get away. Even though she has sinned, I feel like she's properly atoned. And when she cuts free of this dining room table, they all wake up at this table being served stepmom. I want her to get away. Yeah, watching that dad have to puke with that gag in his mouth. But you say Jessica has sinned. I feel like she sinned least. She did let her friends into the store, but she wasn't antagonizing the audience. She was trying to help the guard. Yeah. 
Yeah, she is a good person who you can root for in this movie. I don't feel like she deserves anything that happens to her. She did not sin, which is why she's our final girl. She has a role. Let's not use sin because that's not the way I think. But she has a role in why things went badly. And she has... Yes, paid the price in losing what she's lost. Having her stepmom carved up and fed to her is enough for me to want her to get away and be our final girl. My point is we're not rooting for the carver to get her to. No. And I think that there are some slasher series where we do want Freddy, Jason, whoever, to get their meat. Yeah, I don't think there were obvious targets here that we want to see killed. Uh, I wanted most of these people quite dead, but her, no, that's crucial. I wanted that dad to die. Did the dad never die in this? No, he went to the hospital. The survivors go to the hospital. Yes, a sequel, Black Friday, (laughs) Thanksgiving 2. I could see it happening. Maybe he'll live to be killed in that. Thanksgiving, the next course is what I'd call it. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Thanksgiving leftovers, come on. Oh, yeah, yeah. There will be no leftovers, Jacob. He actually says that. But there's room for a sequel. He lied. And the light meat, dark meat all will be carved, he put in his Instagram post. So the best lines from that trailer are in this movie. Yes, but done in a different way because they don't want the audience like chortling at the same jokes. It's not about reliving the way the trailer was experienced. We experienced the same things emotionally, differently, and I think with more variance. To the movie's credit, I want Jess to get away and she has a very long chase scene where she runs through dandelions and all kinds of shrubbery. She can know when she sees the sheriff later, this is the big twist, she's sees it on his shoes. This is the man that was chasing me. And I'll say, I thought the killer was going to be, if I had to put money down, there's a deputy that just comes in halfway through this film. And at the end here, he's like, Eric, I'm going to need your gun. The detective wants to check it out because you fired it. I'm like, oh, that's how he's going to disarm him. So he could try to kill him at the end too. So like that was the one suspect. No, it's all about briars on the pants at the end. See, when the deputy was introduced, it was right as we got to the one year later, I felt like he was too big a red herring because when Lizzie, the waitress, hands him a John Carver mask and Patrick Dempsey says, everyone's going to be wearing this, he says just very ominously, you're right, I could get used to wearing this. And I'm like, that's just too big of a red herring. We're being drawn to him too much. When I knew it was Patrick Dempsey is Jessica gets back into town and inexplicably, she finds the sheriff laying in the street with a bloody head. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell happened here? If this isn't just really piss poor editing, which it isn't, then the sheriff is the killer because why is he bloody? Why is he on the street? If we're told there was an off-screen attack, I don't believe it. This instant, I'm confirmed it's Patrick Dempsey and then I just need to wait for Jessica to catch up about five minutes later. Yeah, I think this movie has done a pretty great job of offering all kinds of boilerplates for the typical slasher villain. It could be the creepy nerd at school that feels bullied by the jocks. It could be, yes, one of the kids. So many, the guy with all the weapons who inexplicably gave Jess like a ring at the last minute right before the parade. And I was like, is that a tracking device? They lead you down all kinds of paths. And I do think if you want an intellectual murder mystery Agatha Christie game, they give it 
it to you here, but I never thought it wasn't Patrick Dempsey. Just the fact that Patrick Dempsey was doing a Thanksgiving slasher movie, he wouldn't do that unless he was the guy. He wouldn't just play the sheriff. And one of those Transformers, he was a villain. You know, I only know him as a villain. I don't know him as McDreamy. So yeah, it's not a surprise for me that he is suddenly giving the big monologue about how he was Amanda's secret lover and then pulling out a pregnancy photo. She not only died, but she was carrying his baby. This is why he snapped. I mean, this works for an 80s Friday the 13th. I kind of laughed at how stupid it was that like, she is going to bear my child. But maybe that's part of the joke. Maybe that's part of it nodding to scream. Yeah, absolutely. That this was usually the plot. This is the thing we are to accept. And, you know, the problem is, is that now that we had this moment, it should have ended at the dinner table, right? Like running around the float warehouse is kind of an anticlimax. It is. The dinner table was the best scene of the movie. And yeah, now we see this very big close-up of a tank that says it's flammable gas. I don't know why you're inflating your parade floats with something so flammable. Maybe that's actual. And I just don't know that you're using this nitro gas to inflate your floats. But yeah, when I see that it's flammable, I know we're getting a big explosion coming up. And we've been told she knows how to fire a a musket. This is a problem she's had. She had to do it for one of her dad's commercials years ago, and she talks about how she's fired a musket a couple of times. And for the parade, there's a, I guess, actual working musket in the back of one of the trucks that's used to drag a parade float. Again, this just feels because once is never enough with Eli Roth. Like, yes, that he just has to keep doing more and more. This is, yes, like an Arnold line. Sometimes it's funny to laugh at the way that movies like this end with the female getting the weapon and saying the line from the poster. But yeah, like we've had so many climaxes built on top of each other. The excess is getting to me. I just don't get a whole lot of thrill out of seeing either this moment or the next scene where it's a joke on the Friday the 13th. Jason jumps into the boat and she sees the burning pilgrim coming through the closet. I mean, there is no question that Patrick Dempsey was going to live. Like, they don't find the body. You have this big explosion. The way the camera lingers on the other firemen with masks on walking out, I'm like, okay, there's your part two. That's how he lives. Yeah, that's literally my bloody Valentine, how he got out of the mine. Yeah, so the fact that we're going to cut to this, yeah, I knew it was a dream sequence when this fiery body walks. Come on. Yeah, well, no, but I'm saying, aren't you exhausted? As I guess all that I'm saying. Yes, of course we know that they'll keep making more and more of this, but then you wanted to end at the dinner table. I guess that's all I'm really saying. Yeah, no, I agree. That was where this should have ended, like Arnie said. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend feasting at Thanksgiving? Jacob. Yeah, this is an interesting one because... It is a throwback to that original Grindhouse trailer. Like, I was thinking a lot about aesthetics going into this film, just the way it's going to look, the plot beats that you're going to take. Do you do it like an old 80s thing? But we've called out the Scream influence. And I do, I wasn't on the review for Scream, is it six? Is that the latest one? We're already up to that. But I think the controversy there, at least with the host, Stuart, you said that was the best Scream film? Is that correct? It's my favorite. Yeah. And I almost agree, nothing's ever going to beat that Drew Barrymore scene in the first one, but I really enjoyed that new Scream 6 film, and my notes would have been, like, let's just get rid of the meta stuff, like, just do a fun slasher, because, yeah, seeing Ghostface with a machine gun in New York, I don't know, that kind of worked for me. And so, it was interesting trying to take, yeah, that old slasher vibe, and how do you update it for modern audiences, like Scream has had to do. And so, that was on my mind a lot watching this, that, yeah, the violence, some of the jokes, it is going 
going back to that 80s vibe, but the aesthetics feels very new. It feels very modern. I don't think my girls would be complaining a whole lot about the presentation that they were given. This would vibe with them more. Just they like lots of characters in their films. And so they'd probably like this too and going on each little adventure with each little character. Like I do feel there's a lot for modern audiences in this and those choices didn't detract from the fun that I had. Like I like that there was a mystery here even though I kind of cast it aside. It kept me engaged. Like every once in a while I go, oh, is that a clue? Should I pay attention to that? Like I like that it wasn't just a bunch of Eli Roth, you know, dick jokes. Knives coming out of trampolines into someone's private areas. Like that is the problem for Eli Roth for me. I do like that he's willing to go extreme, but like, you got to polish it up a little bit. And I do feel like this was polished up a little bit. That was the surprise here. So yeah, if you want an old 80s style slasher, there's definitely stuff to scratch that itch. If you're a younger generation than us and you like those more modern sensibilities, I think there's definitely things to scratch those itches as well here. It doesn't do everything perfectly. Again, things can be trimmed up. Things can be clarified. There's always notes to be made with this kind of film, but I'm going to have fun. I like lots of mashed potatoes with my Thanksgiving dinner. This is a lot of mashed potatoes. It's fun. It's a recommend. Stuart. Yeah, no doubt Thanksgiving is overstuffed, but it is not a turkey. And, you know, I was expecting a 90-minute SNL sketch. I was expecting Eli Roth to go and tell you all about the great slasher movies he loved as a kid and smearing cranberry sauce and sweet potato casserole all over them. And that's the movie. That's Thanksgiving. Ha, ha, ha. And what he's actually provided is a full banquet. It's a real movie. He, I think, has benefited from having the 15 plus years to develop the story from the joke trailer to what it's become. Because if it had been greenlit, I'm convinced, back in 2007, if he had made this when they made Machete and Hobo with the Shotgun, I think he would have just copied the cool kit. He would have just been happy to be, I'm Robert Rodriguez, I'm Quentin Tarantino. I actually see him developing his style. I actually see him giving more room to the teen drama and to the nostalgia for the 80s that goes beyond the slasher genre. Yes, there's social commentary here too. It's overheated, but sorely needed. Again, I really wanted a Black Friday slasher my whole life. And we finally have a good one. And so you don't have to like an artist to be proud when they do good work. And I'm not a big Eli Roth fan, never have been, partly because he does seem obsessed with uh, splatter and not enough on suspense. But he's done good work here. And I'm thankful that he finally delivered his best film. Three recommends. It's a happy holiday Thanksgiving here. We're all thankful that Eli Roth turned in a better film than I think we might have been expecting. I know I was kind of dreading going into this. I rewatched that Grindhouse trailer and I was like, yeah, that looks fun, but does it need to be a movie? And I started hearing some good word of mouth before I went in. It gave me a little bit of optimism, but I still was like, I don't think I need this movie. I wouldn't have seen this movie without now playing. And I had a good time while watching it. It was a fun throwback slasher. It was better than I expected. And again, Eli Roth is a draw for me, but it had been a while since I'd seen an Eli Roth film that really jazzed me. I didn't see Clock in the Walls. So I am happy to go back and see his extreme aesthetic applied to this film. I think I had a lot of fun with the gore. I enjoyed the chases. I really laughed internally when the woman gets trusted up and served at the table and then I just winced when he carves off that piece of light meat from her it's like and I'm sitting here wondering is that part of a human light meat or dark meat do we have dark meat it's taking my mind to really dark places 
I was wondering that same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So wouldn't we be more like steak than poultry? I mean, the questions I have. Perhaps we do need to do some cannibalism movies to answer your questions. (laughs) I was about to say, this is sounding like a different podcast, Cannibal Cooking Show. (laughs) All I'm saying is I'd grill a human, not roast one. (laughs) If I ever had to get to that point in life. So you've come around to Stewart's position from Soiling Green, that eating humans, oh, let's try it out. <laughs> it's doable. I agree. I could get there. To live, I'd do it. But all right, so three recommends. It's a low stakes investment. <laughs> it probably will make a return. Does this mean we're finally going to get Rob Zombie's Werewolf Women of the SS with Nick Cage's Fu Manchu? I want the Edgar Wright. Don't. <laughs> yeah. His Legend of Hell House style trailer. Yeah, those are the only two trailers left from Grindhouse that uh, they could put in here. Rob Zombie every so often talks about it, but I don't know that a lot of people are rushing to give Rob Zombie money for movies. Munsters didn't do so well. Yeah, I've seen Rob Zombie's movies. If you're going to do that, and I want that film, but give it to a different director. Mm, Yeah, Rob Zombie is the one that I still call Poser. Eli Roth, I'm giving some new respect for, partly for this movie. But yeah, Zombie, mm -mm, no, he is a wannabe that, again, Werewolf Women of the SS sounds like one of his songs, not like one of his movies. I mean, we already got a bunch of movies like that. Go see Sheila of the SS. Exactly. Yes. Make the music video. That is what it always should have been with Rob Zombie. But Eli Roth, Thanksgiving too. I don't know. I feel like you need to change it up. Make it about Easter or something like that. Like you've done Thanksgiving. I don't know what else there is to satirize. But we all hope that you enjoy a happy Turkey Day this Thursday. And... A happy Black Friday. And we have a Black Friday promotion that means you won't have to storm a door. Nobody's going to get trampled. But one thing that would make a great Christmas gift this season is our book. We still have some copies of our book available. Now playing underrated movies we recommend. 125 movies, 375 reviews. You can order that at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. But if you order between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, you have a chance of getting a copy autographed not just by us, but by John Carpenter himself. John Carpenter wrote the foreword to our book, and we got with John Carpenter two copies that are sold over the Black Friday weekend through Cyber Monday will be randomly inserted with the John Carpenter signature. Ten copies will be randomly inserted with just our autographs, but not John Carpenter, and then any orders above 12, you get the book. So there's a chance of getting the Horror Masters autograph along with all of ours. And we're really excited to be offering that. No returns on the book. It is uh, all sales are final. So if you don't get the John Carpenter book, you can't return it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't buy it for John. Buy it because you are grateful as we are grateful for you that we were able to talk about movies on the print. And again, this Friday as well, if your idea of Thanksgiving and getting together with your family is about bloodletting. Well, we've got more of that for you. The Hunger Games are back. They're here with a prequel called The Songbirds. Or Yeah, good luck with this title. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. <laughs> Ugh, this title. Ugh. Anyway, the point is, I like that series. If you donated for it in the past, there's a new fifth installment we're talking about Friday. And then next Tuesday, we've just decided to cover another YA dystopia series that was quite popular, Maze Runner. Don't know much about it, but that's what we'll be doing all the way into December. 
So thank you so much. As always, we are thankful for our listeners for just tuning in every week and joining us, whether it's a new release like Thanksgiving, kind of tying into our review of Grindhouse back in the day and the fact that we've done all the Grindhouse movies, or whether it's our retrospective series like the upcoming Maze Runner. It's rare that we can squeeze a new retrospective series in on the main feed because we're going to theaters so often and keeping up with the series we've done. Thank you for being a Now Playing listener and being part of our community on Facebook and Twitter and communicating with us and especially our supporters. Thank you for allowing us to do the show we do. Is it October already? I guess we can't do that. How many days till? It's just my thankful song. It's become the way that I sing gratitude now. Happy, happy Thanksgiving, 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 happy, happy Thanksgiving from now playing. I don't want to spend my life looking over my shoulder. We need to stop him. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. Someone went off the deep end and they're turning it into a sick holiday game. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. It is going to be a very happy Thanksgiving. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. And I'm tired of pretending like everything is normal and it's not. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. No, 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 no! Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This is weird. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Mr. Pilgrim, Mr. Pilgrim, dressed in gray. Where will you be on Thanksgiving Day? Yeah, I liked the corn cob holders. I now use actually Wolverine claw corn picks. They actually made those. For adults. Yes, but I liked her death quite a bit.